This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We want to start out today's program by wishing well the people who have been exposed in the Santa Rosa area to these horrendous wildfires in the past week. This correspondent is somewhat shocked to note that 1,500 homes and businesses have basically turned to ash, along with a few wineries. One doesn't think of a winery as being particularly flammable, at least not the vineyards, but yeah, the grape fields apparently went up in flames too. This could affect California's wine production for some time. The indications are perhaps that during the Incredibly high winds, near-hurricane-force winds that started this whole thing. Well, some power lines toppled, and the sparks that erupted from the transformers blowing up and the lines shorting seem to have been the start of all of this. We don't have any reason to suspect fault at the part of PG&E. After all, all of us like to enjoy power in our homes, don't we? And we'd like, you know, the utility companies to deliver that power to us. I'm sad to note on a personal level the passing of a good friend who worked for many years at PG&E, who unfortunately for Radio Parallax was very closed-mouthed and unwilling to tell us some of the stories about, well, he could have dished the dirt, let's put it that way. And unfortunately for all of us in general, including Radio Parallax listeners, and, 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 and most especially all of those who knew him, uh, that's never going to happen as he unfortunately left us this, this past summer. We do hope on next week's program, or perhaps the week after, to uh, to bring on Dr. Dave Schneider, who has been on this program previously. He also is a radio personality in the Santa Rosa area, although, unlike yours truly, Dr. Schneider tends to concentrate on talking about medicine and things upon which he can speak authoritatively. We've decided not to be constrained by that here on Parallax. But uh, luckily for Dave, he, uh, his house was spared from the flames, and I do hope he can give us an update. Uh, the hospital which he works in had to be evacuated, as did the Kaiser in Santa Rosa. There are some hair-raising tales, and I think that um, people are going to have to take a look at what really is a safe perimeter around your house or business in the case of flames. And in this case, it's, it's October. And, and that's the driest season. We have only had just a smattering of rain. And, we, you know, in, in this climate that we live in, this Mediterranean climate in, in California, we go many months with no precipitation. And we had an especially wet winter, meaning there was lots of vegetation in the winter, which dried out in the summer. At any rate, we hope to have a follow-up on that in the weeks to come. Some additional follow-up, which, frankly, I cannot resist is on the question of Secretary of State of the United States, Rex Tillerson, calling his boss, Donald Trump, a moron. I understand the actual quote was, an effing moron. I've been watching politics a long time, and I have to say, this is somewhat unprecedented. But what I did not know until yesterday was, and I don't think anybody knew this, why it was that the Secretary of State elected to portray the president with this sort of characterization. As I understand it, and I hope to learn more about it, but as I understand it currently, the reason this took place was that during a meeting in the White House, the president was shown a graph 
of America's nuclear military warheads. As you may or may not be aware, and I hope you are aware, because we've talked about it on this program many times in the past, back in the 60s and 70s, the U.S. had lots and lots of nuclear warheads ready to go kaboom on a moment's notice. Since some of them were on kind of a hair-trigger alert, and as we talked about on last week's program, this can cause problems if there's a glitch in the system, say, as happened in Russia back in the 1980s. Many fear that a nuclear war could start by accident if you have a lot of weapons ready to rock and roll. Well, we are no doubt safer now by the fact that we, we have fewer missiles pointed at Russia and they have fewer missiles pointed at us. Starting back with Nixon in the early 1970s, efforts were underway to make the world a more secure place by reducing this threat of nuclear war. World War Three is... After all, a pretty bad idea. Or so it would seem to most of us. But, but Donald Trump had a different take on looking at this graph of this decline, as it were, of all of these warheads. He took a look at it and said, in fact, he wanted to see our nuclear arsenal built up again. In fact, he wanted to see 10 times the number of weapons that we have currently. This evidently caused some dropping of jaws by the Pentagon people that were there, the military people that were there, were a bit taken aback. And most especially, so was the Secretary of State. And if you think about it for even a microsecond, I imagine you would agree, dear listener, that putting lots more nuclear weapons up on the shelf, ready for use, is probably not wise. Thus, we cannot avoid talking just a bit about Trump for a few minutes at the top of today's program. And to do so, I want to quote from the column by Eugene Robinson, who writes for the Washington Post. Said Mr. Robinson yesterday, The truth can no longer be ignored. Donald Trump is dangerously unfit to be president and could lead the nation to unthinkable disasters. So what are we going to do about it? The White House, quote, has become an adult daycare center, unquote, where the president's senior aides spend, quote, every single day trying to contain him, unquote. That terrifying bit of information was disclosed Sunday by Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chair Bob Corker, Republican of Tennessee, whose decision not to run for re-election has freed him to point out that the emperor is indeed naked. Corker told the New York Times, look, except for a few people, the vast majority of our caucus, and of course that caucus is the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, understands what we're dealing with here. Trump is so erratic that he could put us on a path to World War III. Said Eugene Robinson, the shocking thing is that Corker is merely saying out loud what many others say in private. A man who acts like a bratty, vindictive child has been given the power to launch nuclear weapons. And it's rather undeniable that in keeping with these statements by Senator Corker, we have the fact that in the wake of Rex Tillerson making this remark about the president Donald Trump, in turn, challenged his own Secretary of State to, quote, compare IQ tests, unquote. Spokesman at the White House tried to claim the president was only joking, but he wasn't. In an interview with Forbes magazine, Trump was asked about these reports that he'd been called a moron after a classified briefing session last summer, the details of which were omitted. The president responded that if the claim was true, the two should duke it out in a battle of brain power. 
Trump said, quote, and I can tell you who's going to win, unquote. Now, commenting upon this Donnybrook, Trudy Rubin, a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, noted that, well, in her opinion, Rex Tillerson is toast. She said the Secretary of State, repeatedly humiliated and undercut by President Donald Trump, is clearly on his way to a Rexit, probably by year's end. World leaders know he doesn't speak for the president, which reduces his credibility to zero. And Trump will never forgive him for calling the president a moron. But, noted Trudy Rubin, Trillison's downfall signifies something far more dangerous than the latest tick in the You're Fired Trump reality show. It reflects the collapse of U.S. diplomacy under a president who thinks he can resolve global crises by bluster and threats. And we would remind you that in the past week... President Trump, again, publicly undermined his Secretary of State, dismissing Rex Tillerson's effort to find a diplomatic solution to North Korea's nuclear ambitions. Tillerson had held talks with officials in China where he told reporters that the U.S. had lines of communication open with North Korea. We can talk to them. We do talk to them, he said. Trump promptly tweeted that Tillerson was, quote, wasting his time trying to negotiate with Little Rocket Man, unquote. Adding, quote, save your energy, Rex, unquote. It would further remind you that Tillerson said recently he had never considered leaving his post as Secretary of State and described Trump as smart during his remarks at that time. But it should be noted he did not deny calling him a moron. It uh, has been noted by many up to this point that Donald Trump seems a bit thin-skinned about criticism. A few days back, he lashed out again against Saturday Night Live's sharp criticisms of his administration, saying at one point, late-night hosts are dealing with the Democrats for their very unfunny and repetitive material, always anti-Trump. Should we get equal time? Others, reportedly on Twitter, have pointed out to the president that equal time is meant for campaign season, not to protect elected officials from being the butt of television humor. Mike DeCenzo, a producer for NBC's The Tonight Show, said, That's not how it works. You're not campaigning. Tweeted further, Now, kindly stop tweeting nonsense and go do your job for once. And we've got a couple of stats for today's program related to the president. The first is that 56% of American voters think Donald Trump is not fit to serve as president. 59% say he is not honest, and 69% want him to stop using Twitter. And here's an even more curious stat. Evidently, six out of ten of those who approve of President Trump's performance, which is about 25% of the American public, say they cannot think of anything Trump could do or fail to do that would make them disapprove of him. And as you may have noted, last Sunday, at President Trump's behest, Vice President Pence flew to Indianapolis to witness the game between the San Francisco 49ers and Indianapolis Colts, knowing that some of the players would be taking a knee during the national anthem. This then led to the vice president's departing in a huff. This might be a good time to dig out that quote from Voltaire, although I think that Voltaire actually never said this, but it's been attributed to him, to wit, I may disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Although it seems very much in keeping with the American spirit of liberty, somehow emotions have gotten mixed up in this whole taking a knee thing. And Donald Trump, as he always does, takes advantage of heated emotions. 
saying in a tweet a couple weeks back that he wished the NFL owners would respond to these actions by saying, get that son of a bitch off the field right now. Out. You're fired. Four days after that statement, Trump doubled down and uh, issued 18 tweets calling for a boycott of the NFL and criticizing players for abusing the privilege of earning millions for playing sports. In the wake of that, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said he was proud of how players, coaches, and owners responded to Trump's divisive rhetoric. But if you're feeling bad about the political situation in this country, and we generally are, there may be just a bit of solace in taking a look at other nations around the world to see how it could be worse. Over the past decade and a half, I think we have railed at the mismanagement of Africa's beautiful and friendly country of Zimbabwe under the ham-fisted mismanagement of Robert Mugabe. Mugabe, at age 93, has been mismanaging his country for well over three decades. He's been the only president since independence. But he's getting up there, and, you know, none of us live forever. And it turns out that one of Zimbabwe's two vice presidents has now accused the wife of the president of poisoning him. Vice President Emerson Manangagwa is seen as a potential successor to Mugabe. And so is Mugabe's wife, Grace, age 52. Last week, Manangagwe got extremely sick after eating ice cream from a dairy owned by Grace Mugabe. He had to be treated in South Africa. He now says he was intentionally poisoned, but his fellow vice president, Fela Kazela Mufoko, said that spoiled food, not poison, was to blame and reprimanded Mnangagwe for trying to destabilize the country. Grace Mugabe's public image has taken a series of hits recently. Last August, she was accused of bursting into a Johannesburg hotel room and using an electric cord to whip a South African model who was visiting her two Playboy sons. Grace insists that she was acting in self-defense. And while we struggle to find political solutions here in America, keep in mind that we're not Venezuela. The Economist noted recently that Venezuela has a hunger crisis, with 12% of children suffering from acute malnutrition. But the country's socialist president, Nicolas Maduro, has a cunning plan. Under Plan Conejo, Plan Rabbit, poor settlements are to receive cages containing baby rabbits, which, when fattened up, will provide the protein and calories many people lack. Freddie Bernal, the urban agricultural minister, recently delivered the first consignment of bunnies to 15 communities. Though to the magazine, it makes more sense than some of Mr. Maduro's other ideas. They will breed like rabbits, he predicted. While shops run out of bread, butter, and other staples because of price controls and scarce foreign exchange, the rabbits will reproduce, oblivious of market forces. But it's noted that the hutch-based solution that Mr. Maduro has hatched has run into a hitch. Mr. Bernal discovered that when he visited the beneficiaries, people were naming the rabbits and taking them to bed, he told Mr. Maduro in a cabinet meeting, which was broadcast on state television. Some have put bows on them. Mr. Bernal complained, people must understand that a rabbit is not a pet, but two and a half kilos of meat with high protein and low cholesterol. The magazine noted, re-educating them is not easy. Bernal lamented, we've been taught rabbits are cute. So government websites and social media have sprung into action to spread the word that rabbit meat is tasty and nutritious. The opposition, kind of Venezuela, is apparently skeptical. 
Enrique Capriles, the governor of Miranda State, who narrowly lost the presidential election in 2013 to Mr. Maduro, said, Do you think we Venezuelans are stupid? And he was equally rude about an earlier plan to install vertical chicken coops in the cramped apartments of poor city dwellers. The failure of that plan to alleviate hunger suggests to many Venezuelans that this one, too, is harebrained. Let's take a much-needed detour into something a little lighter, maybe a little bit of entertainment fare, briefly. I don't know whether you checked out, dear listener, the new version of Curb Your Enthusiasm. The ninth season is currently being put out on HBO. After, after a gap of six years, we do want to give the, the people over at HBO credit for allowing Mr. Larry David to go do what he wanted to do for five or six years till he decided he had some good material and could then go back and produce another season. This is not how things are usually done, and perhaps how things ought to be done, at least on a regular basis. My impression is that the show more or less is up to its usual standards, although the much-beloved character of Leon seems to be overworked at the moment. And, and, And don't get us wrong, we like Leon. Another show that apparently keeps winning Emmys, for what that's worth, which in our opinion is just about nothing, uh, is Veep, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Thanks to the efforts of Mr. McMillan, I I now am able to watch uh, at at will some of the past episodes, and I think I'll do that and make some further comments on it, because it is some pretty smart political humor. Now, uh, Mr. McMillan is a big tennis guy. And therefore, I'm sure that he is keen to see the Bobby Riggs movie currently in theaters. And I'm keen to see it as well. So when are we going to do this? Soon. And believe you me, we'll have a thing or two to say about it. I am also keen to see the Blade Runner sequel. Although I'm a little worried about the... It's a sequel. You know, it's hard. If you've got a classic movie, a much beloved, uh, you shouldn't mess with it. But it's getting good reviews, so you know maybe they didn't muck it up. We shall see. One thing I was not aware of till I stumbled upon it in the current edition of The Week magazine was the curse of the Blade Runner cameo. Noted the magazine, with the sequel to Blade Runner now in theaters, talk has returned to the odd curse that afflicted the brands featured in the original 1982 sci-fi classic. This is according to Don Steinberg, who wrote in the Wall Street Journal. Set in a dystopian Los Angeles in the year 2019, Blade Runner featured cameos by a host of then-thriving companies that all seemed to go bust after appearing in the film. Atari, whose logo was shown prominently on the screen, held 80% of the home video game market in 1982. Within a year, it was dumping truckloads of unsold games into a New Mexico landfill. Headphone maker Cost, displayed in an electronic store in the film, was bankrupt by 1984. Two others with screen time, RCA and Bell Telephone, were defunct within a few years. By 1991, then-featured airline Pan Am filed for Chapter 11. The jinx led movie magazine Premiere to run an article titled The Curse of Blade Runner. Oh, Premiere? It folded in 2007. Uh, anyway, what do you think? This might be a good time to the good and the bad and the ugly. What do you say? According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Flat Earthers. After rapper B.O.B., I guess that's how you say his name, launched 
a crowdfunding campaign to build a high-altitude satellite. Well, you know, by definition, satellites need to be pretty high altitude to prove that the Earth is flat. Said the rapper, I'm looking for the curve. It was unfortunately a bad week last week for getting along with the news that four people were arrested after a fist fight in a, quote, empathy tent, unquote, at the University of California at Berkeley. The tent was conceived as a space for pro-Trump and Antifa activists to find common ground. Evidently, passions ran so high last week that the tent was almost knocked over. It's tough, said tent founder Edward Fulch, but we do what we can to foster dialogue. We presume he means dialogue not involving your fists. And it was evidently an ugly week over at the Department of the Interior last week. In the wake of Interior Secretary Ryan Zinka in a speech to oil industry executives saying that nearly a third of his agency's 70,000 employees are disloyal to President Trump. Zinka told the National Petroleum Council, I've got 30% of the crew that's not loyal to the flag. The secretary was complaining that federal workers are dragging their feet on issuing permits for mining and drilling on public lands. Zinka promised huge changes that would speed permits and relax regulations, possibly (laughs) by moving decision-making positions from the Bureau of Land Management and the Bureau of Reclamation from Washington, D.C. to the western states. Zinka said of the energy development permits, the president wants it yesterday. We have to do this by the law. Well, I'm not sure that what the president wants is the law. And we're not sure whether it was a good week or a bad week for monkey business, but evidently plaintiffs in a long-running lawsuit over a selfie taken by a smiling Indonesian macaque named Naruto reached a settlement recently assuring that 25% of future proceeds of the smiling monkey's famous picture will go to groups dedicated to protecting his species and his habitat. We wish them well in that. And no, Mr. Miller, I, I don't know what, what the other 75% of the future proceeds from the monkey's picture are earmarked to go. You know, we've been really critical of technology in this program, and we'll continue to, be, to do so. And uh, we would note that in the wake of this controversy over gerrymandering that's going on, there's a big case before the Supreme Court based on Wisconsin. As you may or may not be aware, Wisconsin's GOP-controlled legislature redrew the boundaries in the state of Wisconsin with such blatant partisanship that even though Democrats won 50% of statewide votes in 2012, it was Republicans that took 60 of the 99 seats in the state assembly. It's been noted that Wisconsin is no aberration. Nationally, recent Republican gerrymandering helps explain why the GOP holds 10% more House seats than the Democrats, 241 to 194, despite winning only 1% more of the congressional vote. Writing about all this in the Sacramento Bee, Edward Cheriminsky opined that the Supreme Court's historic reluctance to tackle the gerrymandering issue is understandable, but sophisticated computer programs have made gerrymandering more powerful than ever. And that is God's truth. Cherminsky added that when a minority of voters consistently wins a majority of seats, it leaves voters cynical about the political process. Duh. Cherminsky noted that if we're to avoid a true crisis in our democracy, we urgently need to get back 
to a system where voters choose their elected officials rather than elected officials choosing their voters. Good God, or what? Well, I believe we mentioned on last week's program that according to the Sacramento Bee, again, the 1939 Valley water deal could spell doom for the Delta Tunnels plan. The Westlands Water District voted recently not to participate in paying for this great boondoggle. The Bee noted that the Westlands decision was rooted in a cost allocation formula imposed by the U.S. Bureau Bureau of Reclamation, a formula that has its origins in the 1939 deal and serves as a reminder of the convoluted nature of water distribution in California. We note with a great deal of approval to the point of some glee that an audit conducted of Jerry Brown's Twin Tunnels plan has been scathing in its criticism. Last week, State Auditor Elaine Howell issued a report, an audit, an opinion piece, in an opinion piece by the Bay Area News Group. The editors noted that despite eight years of pushing his Delta Twin Tunnels plan, the 91-page report says the state has not completed either an economic or financial analysis to demonstrate the financial liability of Waterfix. That's the name the governor has given the project. Furthermore, the auditor wrote, DWR has not fully implemented a governance structure of the design and construction of water fix. Moreover, DWR, Department of Water Resources, has not maintained important program management documents for water fix. The audit further concluded that the State Department of Water Resources did not follow state law when it replaced a key program manager on the project with a company that it hired without a competitive bidding process and which was run by somebody without an engineering degree. State officials disputed that they violated the law and said the project is on track. Aaron Mellon, a spokeswoman for the State Department of Water Resources, said the department has already taken action based on the auditor's feedback and will take their recommendations under advisement as it moves forward with the water fix. Sounding a different view was Barbara Barregan Paria of who's executive director of the Restore the Delta, a Stockton organization that opposes the tunnels. Barigan Perea said, California water fix is in complete disarray. We cannot see how any public water agency can vote to support any percentage of this project. We will continue to follow this one. Oh, and if you care, Twitter announced recently it would allow a small group of random users to test posts with up to 280 characters. In order, it said, to eliminate what it viewed as constraints that kept people from tweeting more frequently. Please don't tell Donald Trump about this. He's already relying upon Twitter for his communications just just a little too much. And finally, in a battle reminiscent of Godzilla versus Mothra, Google is spending $1.1 billion to buy a large chunk of the struggling Taiwanese smartphone manufacturer HTC. As part of the deal, Google will get about half of HTC's research and development team, about 2,000 people, including the engineers who helped develop Google's flagship Pixel smartphone released last year. Writing in TheVerge.com, Vlad Savov said that Google is clearly preparing to go to war against the iPhone. 
By poaching HTC's phone design and engineering teams, the company is telegraphing a clear-cut ambition to confront Apple's dominance in smartphone hardware and services. The iPhone is a direct threat to Google's overarching goal of being ubiquitous on every internet-connected device, largely because Apple's been working feverishly in recent years to become independent of Google by offering its own services such as Apple Maps and iCloud. We'll do what we can to follow this uh, this story too, but we certainly are not experts on tech. And and yes, like all of you, I do benefit tremendously from technology, such as in the production of this radio program. And on last week's show, we we quoted extensively from the Economist's review of the book "World Without Mind: The Existential Threat of Big Tech" by Franklin Foer. And in somewhat unprecedented fashion, we're going to read from more reviews about this book, which we are keen to get a hold of. Writing in the Los Angeles Times, Stephen Zaychik said, Franklin Forrest's latest presents a cogently scary case that big tech is creating a world that will be, as he puts it, less individual and less human. The Atlantic staff writer argues that despite Silicon Valley's profession, despite Silicon Valley's professions of wanting to help society, its true endgame is the advancement of a terrifying ideological agenda. Google whose original model was Don't Be Evil, is today in Forrest's eyes creating an artificial intelligence leviathan designed to eliminate human autonomy. And he views Facebook as a puppet master engaged in stealth social engineering experiments. The tech giant's data-driven algorithms are meant to erode free will, making people screws and rivets in their grand design. Let's take a much-needed break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. 